I'm speaking today about the Jonah Syndrome. God wanted to save the great city of Nineveh in Assyria about 755 years BC. So he sent Jonah, a prophet of Israel, with a warning about the harm and destruction they were causing one another that would end up destroying them as a people unless they went through a spiritual conversion of their minds and hearts. And we read in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, God's word came to Jonah, son of Amittai, up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way and going from bad to worse and I can't ignore it any longer. However, Jonah had made his own judgment about what God really needed to do with this bunch of people. Jonah was a fierce nationalist and he could not agree with God's appraisal of the fate of this despicable Assyrian city. And he tried to escape his responsibility by running away from it. The name Jonah in Hebrew means dove, which speaks of the Holy Spirit's anointed message through this prophet of God. And that message was being contested by the messenger himself. Jonah's attempt to run away probably has some logic to it because he would have assumed that God only spoke to Israel. But that's not so because God showed Jonah in this experience the magnitude of his goodness and mercy to all people, not only Israel. And that as the Lord over the whole earth, he could hold people accountable to his basic covenant standards of blessings and cursing whenever he wanted to. For those ignorant of his covenant, he had respect to a person's heart of a good conscience towards God, as we see in the case of Job and his friends. And he did send prophets to other nations, to Egypt, with Moses to Pharaoh, and to Babylon with Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and of course, Jesus reaching out to Gentiles, all of us. But in Jesus' day, he reached out to the centurion, and the woman who touched the hem of his garment, etc. And he saw them as having great faith, even though they were not covenant people. When Jonah ran away, he boarded a boat to sail off as far away as he could in the opposite direction to Nineveh. But a huge storm hit the ship, and the crew members cried out to their gods. They wanted to find out who had offended some god for this catastrophe to happen. And they turned on Jonah because they suspected that he was running away from something, hiding down in the hold of the boat. And Jonah knew he was the culprit, and he knew he was trapped. And we read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 8. What have you done, they asked, to bring this awful storm upon us? Who are you? What is your work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? And he said, I'm a Jew. From Israel, and I worship Jehovah, the God of heaven, who made the earth and the sea. Then he told them he was running away from his mission from the Lord. The men became terribly frightened when they heard this. Oh, why did you do that? They shouted. What should we do to you to stop the storm? For it was getting worse and worse. Throw me out into the sea, he said, and it will become calm again. For I know this terrible storm has come because of me. 
That solved the problem for the crew, but it did much more than that. The crew of the ship then all turned to God, and the anointing of the dove worked through the resistant Jonah nonetheless. And we read that in Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him overboard into the raging sea, and the storm stopped. The men stood there in awe before Jehovah, and they sacrificed to him and vowed to serve him. Jonah then learned the hard way that God was more persistent and determined than he was about the fate of Nineveh. God then arranged for a second chance and another ocean voyage for Jonah, but this time underwater. He ended up in the belly of a whale after he was thrown overboard from the ship and he cries out to the Lord in prayer. We see this in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God plants Jonah back at the coast from the same place where he boarded the boat to escape from his God-appointed mission. Jonah then goes to Nineveh and preaches for 40 days, and everyone repents and turns to the Lord. We see that in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out within it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, and he went a day's journey. Then he began to call out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when God saw that they had put a stop to their evil ways, he abandoned his plan to destroy them, and he didn't carry it through. This was the last thing that Jonah had wanted to happen. Jonah wanted God to judge them and destroy them. God wanted to save them. It was God's appointed time of spiritual challenge and godly change for Nineveh to have at this time. And after 40 days, it was accomplished. The number 40 narrative in the Bible speaks to us of appointed times of challenge and change where God manifests the divine power of his plan at work for us and with us. These number 40 appointed times narratives occur in the 40 years with Moses as he led Israel through the wilderness and also with Jesus for 40 days in his time of trial and temptation in his wilderness experience of overcoming the devil. This was an appointed time for Nineveh and things were not going well at all for the Ninevites at the time that Jonah served them as a prophet. There are records of famines and domestic uprisings occurring during that time, 
and there were wars with other nations and a run of diplomatic disasters. It has been recorded that in 755 BC there was both an earthquake and an eclipse, which were both threatening omens to the Assyrians, so a strong warning was what God wanted to give them, and that was obviously what they heeded. And Jonah gets angry with God for this. And now we read in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. This change of plans made Jonah very angry. He complained to the Lord about it. This is exactly what I thought you'd do, Lord, when I was there in my own country, and you first told me to come here. That's why I ran away to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to get angry, and full of kindness. I knew how easily you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. So now we can lift the lid on what is this Jonah syndrome? Well, let's have a look at what Jonah learned in all of this and what he did not learn. Jonah learned that God's love was not only just for Israel, but for the whole world. What he failed to learn was how to accept that and to see people the way God sees them. Jonah's reluctant mission had succeeded against all of his own hopes. God loved the Assyrians to Jonah's horror. And Jonah became resentful and went into depression. And there's no mention of Jonah ever having a change of heart in this matter. Perhaps he just ended up a cranky old man. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 4. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. And God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. As far as himself, God arranged for a broad-leafed tree to spring up and grew over Jonah to cool him off and to get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was overjoyed, sitting in the shade, and he enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. The sun came up, and then God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint. He prayed to die. I'm better off dead. Then God said to Jonah, What right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah said, Plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. And God said, What is this? How is it that you can change your feelings from joy to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You didn't do anything. You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next night. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to joy? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong. They don't know their right hand from their left. So there's 120,000 people touched by God. There is a number 120 narrative in the Bible, 
and it applies to the work of God upon the hearts of the people of Nineveh in this situation. Because the 120 narrative speaks of life being reordered from a natural order to a new spiritual order, from flesh to spirit. God spoke about this 120 narrative to Noah. He said in Genesis chapter 6, My spirit shall not plead the cause of man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. In the New Testament, we see that the number 120 also speaks of the new order of spiritual life for all of mankind at Pentecost. We see in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Peter stood up among the disciples, and the company of persons was in all about 120. What are we to learn about the Jonah Syndrome and the troubled days in which we live? We learn that we are left with a choice to either copy Jonah's mean and awkward hatred of his worldly enemies, which is the Jonah Syndrome, or for us to see a world greatly in need of God's warning and of God's mercy. Jonah was a very privileged man in covenant relationship with God. He was called of God, chosen by God, and given a message from God to change a nation and to change history. He finally obeyed God, but with a lot of arm twisting, and he delivered the message, and the mission was successful, but he had a lousy, elitist attitude. He turned gracious privilege into nasty entitlement. He was going to decide who was going to receive God's mercy. There would be people who had a worldview most like his, and who shared his ironclad definition of a censorious God. There are also too many people today who would rather shrink God's atoning grace than magnify it. Our troubled world is receiving strong warnings from God in the midst of the harm and destruction it is bringing upon itself in this age we live in now. The God option is for this world to go through a spiritual conversion of minds and hearts across the globe. The world today is experiencing both the 40 narrative of a time of spiritual challenge and godly change and the 120 narrative of being reordered from a natural order to a new spiritual order in Jesus. When by the grace of God I awoke to the fact that I was not an outsider to the kingdom of God, but an insider in the kingdom of God through Jesus. And that had nothing to do with my goodness or badness or anybody else's opinion of me. It was between God and me through the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't change us from bad to good. He changes us from natural to spiritual through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And when we realize that, we understand what Paul said about himself and all the rest of us in our basic humanity. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my human nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That is why Paul also wrote, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. This is a time to see the world as a world that God loves, as he did Nineveh, and to see it reinstated into his covenant blessings through Jesus Christ. This is not just a prayer for people, but it's also a merciful attitude to people, which doesn't mean that we're not to discern between good and evil and to stand against evil. In fact, we stand with all our might against the tyrants and dictators of today who seek to murder thousands of innocent people. But we are not to be spiritual elitists with a Jonah syndrome of being king's kids trying to impress the world with some kind of superior brand of spirituality. God help us if we try to do that. We are simply a blessed people brought into covenant with God and believing in it. God has brought the whole world into covenant with him, but who believes it? So we are a blessed people that have been given the grace and mercy of God to have faith from him to believe. Paul puts this balancing act into context when he describes how God's love works through us in this kind of situation. From 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So our prayer is that we let the anointing of the dove to cause us to not only have a message of love and hope, but to be that message to the people in our world. I want to finish by remembering the words from Jesus out of Luke 23 as he hung upon the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Lord bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen.